Ready? Born ready. of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Sabalong. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we've got another great show for you. So much is continuing to happen in the political sphere. Uh, Monday was the last day of the 2022 legislative session for the Georgia General Assembly. That's the Georgia House and Georgia Senate, uh, who meet for 40 days and 40 nights at the beginning of the year and do, um, they either pass good or bad legislation, depending on who's in power and what's the agenda uh, of the week. Um, But a couple of good things have happened. So let me highlight uh, some of them. Uh, First up, we talked about this, but now it is officially passed the Mental Health Parity Act. This is House Bill 1013. It was introduced by Speaker of the House, David Ralston, which is rare. He doesn't usually introduce legislation. Um, A couple of things about this bill that are really good. So one, uh, it addresses mental health in the state of Georgia. It calls for training for first responders. It provides coverage for mental health-related medications. And it provides same-day reimbursement for mental health care costs. So Medicaid, um, Medicaid managed care insurers spend about 18 or excuse me, 85% of the dollars they get in premiums on medical care. Um, Georgia is one of only a few states that does not require a minimum level of medical spending and quality improvements for Medicaid insurance insurers. So this is a big deal. There was a complimentary bill in the state Senate called the Georgia Behavioral Health and Peace Officer Co-Respondent Act. That is a mouthful. This bill authorizes law enforcement to take someone who might be experiencing a mental health episode to an emergency facility instead of taking them to jail. And this is important because when an officer arrests someone and takes them to jail, the jail staff may not know or realize that that person is experiencing a medical episode. Um, and I'm going to give you an example of something that happened. I believe this was last year. Uh, this was in Cobb County. So Cobb PD arrested someone for uh, trespassing. Uh, the person had, they did not know this at the time, but the person had just got out of the hospital for overdosing. Uh, apparently the individual went back on drugs uh, soon after being released he trespassed and was, you know, in someone's pool without their uh, awareness of it. He gets arrested. They book him in the jail. The jail staff is not made aware of any of this, right? So the jail staff doesn't realize that he is recently OD'd or yeah, recently overdosed and that he has drugs again in his system. And the individual passed away within like 24 hours of being in the jail. And had the officers been able to take him to a facility instead of the jail, we don't know for sure, but it's possible that his life could have been saved. 
So that's a reason why this bill is so important. Uh, Georgia Health News um, reported that the Senate removed some language in this bill that would have provided support for culturally and linguistically tailored services. That basically means uh, behavioral health services tailored to immigrants. I don't know why that was removed. Um, what was the rationale for that? But that was not included in the final legislation. And a quick aside for you uh, related to medical health and all that. So the state's insurance office just fined Anthem, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield, $5 million, one of the largest <laughs> fines ever. The reason why is that Blue Cross Blue Shield listed some healthcare providers as being part of the network when in fact they were not. And so it ended up being an additional cost burden on the public. Right. And so um, this is a big win for the insurance commissioner. Uh, by the way, this is why it's so important to research the candidates and vote the entire ballot. So look up the positions that you may not already be familiar with, like insurance commissioner, because what they do is hold insurance companies accountable and they are supposed to look out for you and me, the consumer. Uh, so don't forget to stay tuned uh, to our Who Runs Georgia series. Well, I'll break down these various positions and so you can have a better understanding of who they are, what they do, and why you should care. Uh, all right, another bill that passed uh, Juneteenth. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp asked Calvin Smyre, the dean of the House, who we featured in last week's episode. Uh, the governor asked him to carry House Bill 1335. This is the bill, uh, once the governor signs it, will make Juneteenth a paid state holiday, uh, something of note, particularly in a time where we've got a lot of partisan bickering, a lot of, um, you know, folks who were surprised and maybe did not expect uh, the governor to actually put forth some political will to make that bill happen. So signy die um, was Monday. That's the last day of the session. It is officially over. And now everyone has switched gears and they are in full-blown 2022 campaign mode. Governor Kemp uh, did a sit-down interview with the Marietta Daily Journal. That is a family-owned paper in Cobb County. It's basically uh, the Cobb County's version of the AJC. So the MDJ asked Governor Kemp about the 2020 and 2021 election drama, why he didn't call for a special session to try to investigate or even overturn the results. And in this interview, Kemp kind of throws Secretary of State Raffensperger under the bus. So Kemp says that he didn't have the authority to order a signature audit, and that was really up to Raffensperger, the Secretary of State. Uh, and then he goes on to say that he publicly asked Raffensperger to, in fact, order a signature audit, but Raffensperger did not. And then Kemp turned his attention to Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani, as you might remember, is one of Trump's, or was one of Trump's attorneys. Uh, and here's what he said um, about this whole thing. And I quote, look, the way the laws and the process works in Georgia Calling a special session is not the answer. Your lawyers need to go into court because once the election is certified, that's the only way you can get to something to change or order an action. 
A superior court judge would have to do that. And then he goes on, well, you know, Rudy Giuliani did a great job of going to a Senate committee and saying all this stuff, but if he had all this evidence, why didn't he go to a courtroom? Probably because he didn't want to perjure himself. Wow. Like, that is exactly (laughs) correct. Um, And it's refreshing to see a Republican governor be truthful and straight up about this. Um, And it's really unfortunate to see so many Republicans still not able and willing to kind of see the truth about this. Uh, Kemp also gave a bit of insight into how he'll campaign against Stacey Abrams uh, in the general election. He links her to folks like AOC and Nancy Pelosi. And he says that Stacey Abrams is bad for business. Uh, A few things he says that Uh, She criticized him for opening up the economy. She criticized him for putting the kids back in school, uh, that if it were up to her, she would have closed churches in the middle of the pandemic, um, that she's anti or has not stood up for law enforcement. She would ruin the economy. You know, these are all things that he's going to use as attack, points of attack against Stacey. Uh, We really won't see... A lot of back and forth between the two of them until after the primary election, which is May 24th. Uh, But as soon as that's done, it's going to be on and popping. Something happening in Atlanta that is some good news, uh, although it's rather delayed news, I should say. Uh, In fact, it took 13 years uh, of pushing, but cleaners at the Atlanta airport are finally going to receive pay increases. They were making $8.50 an hour. And that is now going to be bumped up to $12 to $15 per hour, in part because they threatened to go on strike. Uh, but Mayor Andrew, uh, Andre uh, Dickens helped uh, get them some of the extra money. Now, the council had already voted to increase the city's minimum wage to $15 over a period of time. So I don't know why. And the news articles didn't make clear why they were only making $8.50. But Glad that airport workers are making a little bit more money now. Well-deserved, well-overdue. Now let's talk about something going on in Fulton. This is an interesting story. Uh, The Fulton County District Attorney just announced a partnership with the Metro Atlanta Chamber to address a crazy huge backlog of felony cases, cases. How big am I talking about? 1.6 million felony charges. Like, how is this even possible? (laughs) So they have launched what they are calling a repeat offender tracking unit. And that unit is going to coordinate information between the district attorney, Fulton County Sheriff, the Atlanta Police Department, and the Atlanta Police Foundation. Just to remind you of what happened in the election Uh, Fonnie Willis, who is the current DA, defeated Paul Howard, the incumbent, in the 2020 election. This was just on the heels of George Floyd. We also had the blue flu when APD officers were calling out in retaliation to Mayor Bottoms, firing those officers who pulled the college students out of their car. Uh, And so there was a lot of tension in the district attorney's race. Um, A lot of the police officers in the police department did not want to see Paul Howard reelected because of that. According to uh, the new DA, Fonnie Willis, 
Paul Howard's office apparently had it was terrible at record keeping. And so uh, this effort is part of the solution to fix a lot of longstanding problems in the DA's office. Another thing of note about the DA, she is in, uh, reinstating something called court watch. Now, this is I'd never heard of this before. This is where citizens show up in courtrooms to pressure judges into giving tougher sentences to repeat offenders. Apparently, this is something that they had way back when, but under D.A. Howard, it kind of fell to the wayside at some point. And so uh, the new court watch will train citizens in court procedures on a quarterly basis, and they have to uh, sign up for a six-month commitment to volunteer to do this. And the whole point behind this and why they're particularly targeting repeat offenders is because APD, uh, the Atlanta Police Department, has said repeatedly that most of the crimes that are happening in the city are from repeat offenders. It's not new people. It's the same folks day in, day out, get out of jail, uh, commit a crime again, go back in, and then they just repeat the cycle. So on to national news. We have talked about this particular topic a lot, and I'm going to keep talking about it because Democrats are so slow to do something about it. Uh, what am I talking about here? Student loan debt. So polling data shows Democrats have a big opening with voters regarding student loan debt. And I really think they would be stupid to miss this, but I'm not going to hold my breath and hope that Democrats don't do something stupid. So the poll, uh, a poll was done by Rise and Data for Progress of voters in battleground states like Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And it showed that 45% of those voters polled were either somewhat or much more likely to vote if Biden cancels $10,000 in federal student loan debt. Now, remember, Biden campaigned on canceling $10,000 of student loan debt, so this is nothing new. Uh, and according to the survey, 55% of respondents said that they trusted the Democratic Party more than the Republican Party to provide student loan debt relief. So really, the ball is in Democrats' courts. They've been talking about uh, student loan forgiveness, at least $10,000 since the election. They haven't done anything yet. Uh, there's uh, the former Obama education person who's pushing for actually $50,000 of student loan debt relief. So whether it's 10, whether it's 50, I think there's going to be, it's, it's pretty clear that the public wants Biden to do something. And if they kick the can down the road and don't do something before the midterms, I think it's going to end up hurting them. Another thing that should be, um, an easy pass for both parties, but it's not. <laughs> so the House, I'm going to talk about this in a second. The House passed a marijuana legalization bill on Friday, but don't get too happy. Uh, only three Republicans voted for it. Now, the last time a similar bill passed, that was in 2025, Republicans voted for it. By the way, two thirds of Americans support legalization of marijuana, marijuana. So from an organization called Truth Out, here's the gist. Uh, the legislation that Democrats passed um, on Friday would allow for re-sentencing hearings and expungement for people convicted of certain federal marijuana crimes. Um, it would also tax legal marijuana sales 
And here's where the distinction is between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So Democrats are pushing for the taxed uh, revenue, the amount that they receive from marijuana sales, to fund economic programs in communities damaged by the drug war and to remove barriers to starting legal cannabis businesses. If we look at nationally, who is owning legal cannabis businesses, they're overwhelmingly dominated by white individuals. But if you look at who's been locked up for cannabis sales, it's overwhelmingly black individuals. So it's not that Republicans broadly are against legalization, but they are not yet coming to agreement on what to do with the revenue from weed sales. So a Republican bill introduced last year said that they think the money should be used to fund law enforcement, small businesses, and veterans' mental health initiatives. That, to me, seems like a big disconnect um, and a huge difference. I, I don't know how they're going to meet the middle of the road here, because that's a big difference between what Democrats want to do and what Republicans want to do. So uh, because of that, the you know nothing is, is going to move forward until they can figure out what to do. Now, I think given that two-thirds of the American public is for legalization, um, maybe, you know, it would make sense to have a bipartisan group of legislators commission a poll to find out how does the public want to see that money spent? What happens if um, more local municipalities just vote to legalize it? Would so, that force yeah, the they're, federal, like, you know, if every state just continuously say, okay, it's legal, it's legal, legal till damn near over half of the state's Right. Yeah. So it won't it can't happen at the city level. At the city level, you can vote to decriminalize it, meaning if you have a small amount, they're not going to lock you up. But only the state can vote to legalize it. Right. So then the state can say, okay, we're going to tax it at this amount. And then the state can figure out what they want to do with those tax dollars. So if the federal government did it, then I would think that you could end up having a federal tax on weed and a state tax on weed, right? And then maybe even a local tax. I don't know. It depends. But it's, it's a missed opportunity, in my opinion. And you don't even have, this isn't like a pro-weed thing. It's just a common sense thing. Um, okay, on to something that's really big. If you hadn't heard about it, this was like an earth-shattering moment in the labor unionization movement. Last week, uh, Amazon workers in Staten Island voted to join a union. Huge, huge news. The movement to unionize was led by two black guys, two young black guys. I think they were in their early 30s, Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer. Smalls was kind of made the public face of the unionization effort. He started at Amazon in 2015. Uh, in 2017, he was fired for stealing two minutes of company time. Two minutes. <laughs> he appealed the company's decision and was reinstated. Um, and then he was fired again in 2020 for violating a company-imposed 14-day quarantine after he came in contact with an employee who tested positive for COVID. Why is this a big deal? 
Uh, this happened right after he led a walkout of allegedly uh, a walkout. And then during this walkout, uh, they were basically saying that they broke social distance guidelines. But the whole point of the walkout was because the employees were protesting COVID protocols or the lack thereof in Amazon warehouses. So Amazon wasn't telling workers that some of their employees had tested positive. Uh, and then people just felt like there weren't enough protections for workers. Now, remember 2020, and we're like OGs to COVID now, right? But in 2020, COVID was scary. And we weren't sure, like, if you get it, are you going to be okay? Vaccines were just starting to be rolled out. Like there was a, you couldn't get PPE. There was just a lot of uncertainty and, and fear around COVID back then. So uh, they fired Smalls and because of the reason why they fired them, it just made them look really hypocritical and vindictive, right? Because you had employees complaining about, hey, you're not doing enough to protect us. And then they fired him for being in contact with someone and not imposing, not doing the entire 14-day quarantine. And also, he was not the only person. There were numerous employees who had been in contact with this individual. So Amazon's general counsel, that's just their number one attorney, their lead attorney, um, he said this about Smalls in an internal meeting. And at least a portion of that meeting was attended by Amazon CEO and our overlord, Jeff Bezos. So uh, he said, Amazon's general counsel said, Smalls was not smart or articulate, that we should spend the first part of our response strongly laying out a case for why the organizer's conduct is immoral and unacceptable and arguably illegal. Uh, make Smalls the most interesting part of the story. Make him the face of the entire union and organizing movement. And they did just that. They had Smalls arrested for bringing food to the warehouse for workers uh, I want you to take a listen to this video that features Palmer. He's one of the guys who's working with Smalls. He's kind of the co-lead on the unionization effort. So this is Palmer and their pro bono attorney. Chris was bringing grilled chicken and pasta to feed the workers. We had just finished um, passing out all the food. And then I went outside to talk to Chris because I saw the general manager um, talking to, to him. Uh, he approached me, he asked me to leave the premises. And I said, you know, I will leave. I complied, I said, I'll leave. Uh, several minutes later, that's when uh, uh, five or six squad cars pulled up and about 12 police officers jumped out. Uh, several members of my union, the ALU, came out of the cafeteria to my aid, and the police officers actually started to arrest them before they arrested me. I was the third one to be arrested. And obviously for no reason, they charged me with trespassing. As they were leaving, said, we won, you lost. So it's apparent to us that the Staten Island police are really the 21st century Pinkerton force for Amazon. There's food vendors that come here all the time on the property who don't work for Amazon. Um, people who like drop people off all the time. Like, are they considered trespassing? If I was a delivery service, whether it was Domino's or Uber Eats, uh, none of this would have happened. We wouldn't be having this conversation. 
but because I'm organizing this union, because I'm who I am in the public, uh, they have a target on me. They were shaking the hands of um, the Amazon supervisors as they arrived. They said that they were speaking on behalf of Amazon when they demanded that Chris leave the premises. So the police are not acting as a neutral factor trying to preserve the, the concept of the right of property and First Amendment rights. They're actively taking a side. They searched me several times. They threw me up against two different vehicles. And I was the only one that was asked, do I have any weapons on me? Obviously, why would I bring weapons out here? There's no need to. I was just treated differently from the, from the beginning. When I got to the precinct, they cut my pants, they cut my strings off, they made me uh, stand there for six hours with no shoes on, and we was in the holding cell for about six plus hours. Meanwhile, they couldn't really find a reason why they had to hold us that long. But we stayed there, and right after we left, we went right back to organizing. Their intentions was to destroy us, but it made us stronger. So the person that was muffled, that was obviously Smalls. He was wearing a, a mask. Um, wow. Like, <laughs> this is this is um, really remarkable to hear. Why were the Staten Island workers organizing? What did they want from Amazon? $30 minimum wage, two paid 30-minute breaks, a paid hour lunch break, better working conditions. Uh, an example of a better working condition is... They wanted to be able to have keep their phones with them. So before the pandemic, I didn't never realize this, but before the pandemic, Amazon workers, warehouse workers have to lock their phones up uh, for the workday. Uh, you could only access it when you were on a break. Um, but when the pandemic happened, you know, Amazon was like, well, I'm sure you all need to be in more frequent contact with your loved ones. So they changed the rule and workers were allowed to keep their phones on them. So that's one thing that they're asking to remain uh, post-pandemic. Another thing and why they want paid uh, breaks is you might have heard of Amazon pee bottles. Um, this is where, because, you know, how large the warehouses are, Thinking, think about like a football field and you are on one end of the field, but to get to the bathroom, you're basically walking to the other end of the field. Uh, so because they just don't have enough time, to get from their, you know, where they currently are back to, to the take a lunch or water break and then come back, you had individuals peeing in bottles because they just did not have enough time. And you saw how strict Amazon is on their, on their, um, their checks or their um, clocking in and out, right? They originally fired him for two minutes. So that means Amazon is counting to the second where their employees are, when they're clocking in, when they're clocking out. Uh, so these are just some of the reasons why these Amazon workers are organizing. So uh, because of this, uh, there are three more Amazon, Amazon warehouses in Staten Island that are going to start organizing to join a union. Plus, you've got workers in 18 other states that are also doing the same. Uh, and then you probably heard me talk about this in an episode, maybe it was late last year, about the Bessemer, Alabama plant, where they did a union election and it failed, but they have to have a new election because the federal government, uh, through the National Labor uh, uh, National Labor Council, I think that's what it's called, 
they found that Amazon had violated the rules and impacted the results of the election. So Bessemer is going to be doing another election. Uh, you have uh, There's a pro-labor media outlet called More Perfect. They have been tracking reactions to the Amazon unionization from Congress. So far, no one representing Georgia has chimed in in support or opposition to the Amazon union vote, which I found a bit interesting because we do have Amazon facilities here. Uh, although I'm not sure if they are considering unionization, but because Staten Island passed so overwhelmingly, I could see that this being like a very big, quick domino effect. Um, I will say Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who represents Georgia's 5th District, she has come out in support of Starbucks workers who are unionizing. Um, by the way, the U.S. House Oversight Committee is looking into what happened following those deadly December tornadoes that struck an Amazon facility in, I think it was in Indiana. Um, so allegedly, Amazon refused to let the workers leave even though they knew that the warehouse was going to be hit. Uh, and I believe it was six Amazon workers who died at that facility uh, when those tornadoes hit. So that's Amazon. Uh, a couple of other big unionizing uh, related things. Chevron, you got workers at a Chevron oil refinery in California on week two of a strike. Uh, the company is refusing to give a cost of living increase Workers asked for an immediate 5% increase and then a 12% raise over the next four years. Chevron said, we'll pay you a 2.5% pay increase. Now, we've been talking about inflation a lot. Inflation is in the 7%, so 2.5% increase is nothing. And by the way, Chevron posted $15.6 billion in profits last year. <laughs> and then Starbucks. Uh, workers at a Starbucks roastery in New York City just won their union election. This is the 10th victory for the Starbucks union. Now, there are only six Starbucks roasteries, uh, roasteries in the world. So this is a big one that they got, the New York City roastery. Uh, by the way, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz has retaken the reins as CEO uh, one of the reasons that he is returning um, is the desire to tamp down this union fever, uh, which is across, I think it's 20 states now of Starbucks uh, stores that are considering or actively moving towards unionization. So uh, what's important to recognize in all these unionizing efforts that we're seeing is that these are diverse groups of people. You've got young people, old people, black, white, immigrants, educated, parents, uh, grandparents. It's a multi-generational, multi-ethnic thing. These are everyday Americans. You know, I remember back when Obama was running for re-election, we heard a lot about Joe Sixpack, right? The average white American guy who's a blue-collar worker. And Joe Sixpack doesn't want the government interfering in his life. He just wants to work, go home, be with his family, and drink his beer in peace, right? But we're seeing more and more now is that same type of guy, the Joe Sixpack, who wants all those things, but he also wants to be able to afford the home, right? To afford the beer, to actually be able to sit, uh, spend time and see his family and be in good health. And when you're working 10, 12-hour shifts, 
uh, and you have a company that's not willing to put workers' uh, safety first, uh, recognize that workers need additional income as inflation is happening. And so you're getting now the corporate, the corporate folks in the ivory tower, so to speak, they're getting their raises and they're getting increases and in perks, but it's not happening at the lower level for the folks who are actually moving the product. It's a real problem. So there's a national shift happening around worker care and protection. Um, it seems, and this is, again, I think an opportunity for Democrats to be seen as standing up for the little guy. Uh, and Republicans right now are either being quiet about all these unionization efforts or they're being seen as being pro-billionaire and pro-corporations. But I think the party that gets this right and connects the dots between workers' rights and smart capitalism are the ones who are going to end up winning the middle. All right, an update on Kentaji Brown Jackson. So if everything goes according to plan, the Senate will vote later this week on her confirmation to be the next Supreme Court justice. As of right now, it is officially a bipartisan confirmation. I talked about this last week where we weren't sure if there was going to be at least one Republican who would uh, side with the Dems and vote uh, for her. So at least one, that person is uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins from Maine. She said that she will vote to confirm Kentaji Brown-Jackson as the next Supreme Court justice. Why is this a big deal? Because Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been quietly and very fervently pushing Republican senators to vote no. He's saying that she is soft on crime, uh, and that's the message that they're going to use during the midterms, that Democrats are soft on crime. And so there are a couple of other senators who have not yet, Republican senators, who have not said which way they are going to vote. Uh, so it's, and it's interesting, like they are conceding that she's uh, indeed qualified uh, and that she would be a good Supreme Court justice, but they are not willing, it seems, to give uh, Democrats any ounce of something that is seen as success or a win. All right, as we sort of wrap up here, I want to highlight uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. I know there is actually still a war going on in Ukraine, although it seems like everything has gotten uh, side sidestepped by the slap. I'm out here. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Uh, okay. So it's just a remind, like, let's bring this back to real world. Uh, Zelensky spoke at the Oscars last week, and then he spoke again at the Grammys this Sunday. It was a very short message, but it was to the point. And it was really a sobering reminder that while you and I are experiencing a normal life, you know, we wake up and we do whatever it is we need to do. We see our family and friends. We go out to eat. We attend a concert. We do this or that. You have Ukrainians right now as we listen, as you listen to this and as I talk, who are dying of hunger. You have women who are being raped by Russian soldiers. You have apartments in the Ukraine that are being bombed. Um, so take a listen to what Zelensky said 
at the Grammys. And it's he has a pretty heavy accent and he speaks a bit fast. So listen real closely to what he says. The word. What's more opposite to music? The silence of ruined cities and killed people. Our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died. And we'll never see them drawing. Our parents are happy to wake up in the morning in bomb shelters, but alive. Our loved ones don't know if we will be together again. The world doesn't let us choose who survives and who stays in internal silence. Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedo. They sing to the wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs. The dead silence. Feel the silence with your music. Feel it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV. Support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come. To all our cities, the war is destroying. Chernigiv, Kharkiv, Volnovakha, Mariupol, and others, they are legends already, but I have a dream of them living and free, free, like you on the Grim stage. So he was saying that he, he has a dream that those Ukrainian cities will be free. Uh, by the way, President Biden officially said that Putin should be charged for war crimes, which is big news. All right, to wrap up our show, again, it's our favorite segment, Party Poopers and Party Starters. I think this... Turn out the lights, the party's over. <laughs> the party's over, close the gates. What? All right, party's over, everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. <laughs> This is a good party pooper for this week. Uh, it's actually two people. <laughs> it's two people that you may not think their names go together. Uh, Hunter Biden and Donald Trump. <laughs> yep. So Hunter Biden, if you don't know, is the son of Joe Biden. Uh, you might remember during the 2020 election, there was this crazy story about a laptop that Hunter Biden owned. Uh, Republicans that got a hold of the laptop and claim that there were emails on it that showed Hunter was being paid by Ukrainian and Chinese and Russian businessmen uh, to help them with their business dealings, all on the strength of the Biden name, and that Joe Biden was aware of all of this and even complicit. Hunter is textbook nepotism, as is Trump's kids. Like, let's be clear, Ivanka uh, and her husband made millions and millions of dollars while they were advising the president of the United States. And this is all while he is still in office. Like They profited heavily off of the Trump name while Trump was in office. So nepotism happens. Like, let's be real. It does. My issue is when nepotism becomes a national security problem. That is not okay. In a recent interview, uh, Donald Trump said Russia should release any info they have about Hunter Biden's business dealings in Russia. Now, we just talked about what's going on in Ukraine. 
It's basically Russia versus everyone else, Russia versus the West for sure. So Trump saying this now, considering everything that's going on, is extraordinarily dangerous. Um, and if Putin does indeed decide to release something, what at what point does that hinder um, or hamper at all what Biden is trying to do uh, as it relates to Ukraine? And so because of all of this, the two of them are for sure this week's party poopers. Let's get it started in here. What's rule number one? Party. So party starters. This is a sort of a party starter. I'm going to highlight it because it is somewhat good news. Um, a bill passed the House to limit the cost of a copay of insulin to $35 a month. Twelve Republicans voted for it, so it's technically a bipartisan bill. Um, it's, you know, if you do have diabetes, this isn't important for you, particularly if you have insurance. Uh, now the kicker here is why I said it's only sort of a party starter is the actual price of insulin remains unchanged. The only difference here is that, uh, the insurance companies and the federal government, government via Medicare, Medicaid are paying more. So they're picking up the cost. Uh, but ph pharmaceutical companies have not reduced the price of insulin. So the big question here is the House passed this bill, and it is important, but what is the Senate going to do? Now, Republicans also want to see insulin prices go down, but they're not, what it seems to be is that they're not willing to go along if it means the federal government is going to be absorbing the cost. So we want the cost to go down, but not if we're the ones paying for it. And by the way, just by the numbers here, 11.3% of Americans have diabetes. 96 million Americans are pre-diabetic. And medical debt is the number one reason for bankruptcy in America. So there's got to be something done around this diabetes and insulin, you know, issue. Of course, one of, the re one of the ways to reduce uh, the likelihood of diabetes is eating healthy and exercising. It seems to me that the government should try to pair to some extent that they can, um, improving access to quality, healthy foods um, with this, uh, and then also in some, in some way possible, encouraging healthy activity. Uh, I remember... Earlier in the pandemic, I think it was it was some South American country that actually put out a number of promo videos encouraging uh, the public to eat healthy and to exercise because it reduced the likelihood of getting COVID because your body is healthier. And so um, perhaps it's time for for us to do that as a as a country and as a society. So I want to hear more from you guys. We have something called voice notes. If you look in the show description, you can see, uh, click on that and leave the voice note. We've got one this week. Um, the more we get, the more uh, competition is to see which is the best note that we want to feature on the show. 
So let's listen to this one. Hey, this is Morgan. Uh, I'm answering the question, uh, what is... Uh, what do I want to see in GOP 2.0? First, I want to see a GOP 2.0 that is more level-headed and and has more integrity. I've been disappointed with how the GOP has been using falsehoods and fringe ideas like the uh, election fraud uh, to draw out fear in people and to use that fear to maintain power. I think more nuance and level-headedness would be helpful and less stressful for everyone. Uh, Two, I, I would want to see a GOP P2.0 that uh, focuses more on its values uh, to drive uh, policies than than just acting in opposition to whatever the other party is doing. Uh, an example: of This is abortion. Uh, the GOP is is against abortion because of its its places of value on life and on family. Um, but you don't really see this taken to its full extent. Uh, I think there is opportunity for the GOP to, to focus on that, those values of life and family and to think about how it shouldn't just be banning abortion, but could also be holding the father responsible for child support or making sure that the mother has the adequate resources to take care of the child after birth. Um, and I just haven't seen that holistic approach to um, policies uh, currently with the GOP. It's more based on uh, opposing what the other party is doing. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. Those are all good points. Again, you can leave a voice note by just checking out the memo section uh, of of the show description. I would love to hear a voice note about anything from marijuana legalization to what we talked about with unions. There's a lot going on in the union effort. Does that make sense to you? Do you think we should be having unions? Uh, There's a lot. There's a lot we could talk about. Student loan debt. Is there something going on in Atlanta that you want to leave a voice note about? Uh, Drop it in and let us know, and we'll play it on the next show. That's our show. Uh, For any of my Muslim listeners uh, who are tuning in, I want to wish you a Ramadan Mubarak. I think you're on day like three or so of fasting. Um, Everyone have a great week. Can't wait to see you in person. Once we start doing something like we need to do some in-person shows. We got 2022 election. We need to figure this out. I want to see who's listening, who's tuning into the show. Y'all take care.